you get off on the weird? Monsters, Halloween, horror. You've heard of word porn, car porn, earth porn. Now prepare yourself for monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by the Backwards Hat Guy, Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good for humans. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is The Cow in Reverse by me. Well, Matt's sick. Hmm. I hope he dies. Then I can necromance him back and finally find out what the Wi-Fi password in the underworld is. Of course, this means I have to record monster porn by myself. Uh, I'll have to tell Mom I can't come to tea. I'm recording monster porn. Again. <coughs> hmm. Devil's delicatessen. I hope I'm not getting sick. I can't necromance myself. That's called necromancerbation. <coughs> I hope there's not, like, anything particularly nasty going around or something. I haven't kept up on the news for a couple millennia. <coughs> Why are my coughs subtitled in Chinese? Huh. Weird. <coughs> oh well, let's have the story, I guess. The dropship made landfall in West Willow by the coast, poorly timed to arrive in the middle of the night and cause no small stir. The guests apparently mistook the Gold River building for the Capitol, being the most extravagant building in this hemisphere. Why they did not choose High City in the East with this reasoning could not be answered. In any case, the East Earthers waited around the vessel well into daylight, allowing the guests to make the first gesture, whether toward peace or toward treachery. By the third hour, we grew tired of waiting, for nothing stirred and some intrepid scientists of the Knowing Institute were permitted to form a team to attempt to enter and explore the craft. The team found access to be an easy matter. I would learn later, and not from the live broadcast, that the main access point to the Star Barge had been designed for external access and not at all for egress, having been locked from the outside. They encountered a stark interior to make any monk of the five wheat corns tradition jealous of the middling light and sparse furnishing. In this space, like a dim warehouse, about ten dozen occupants waited us, listless and docile, as if their only business was waiting our entry. The guests are bipedal, as we are, and with a similar body plan. They possess large, glassy, principally black eyes. Discrete flat teeth, optimal for herbivory, and two truncated ossified eruptions on the forehead, suggesting an evolutionary heritage of mating-centered combat display. From between the two stub horns, and back over the crown toward the occipital lobe, there grows plentiful hair, usually of bright color, pink or teal, more rarely purple, sky blue, or sea green. These 
Others watched our contact team calmly, albeit with slight skittishness. There was no obvious attempt at communication, and we were unable at the time to guess at the primary channel of their natural communication, whether auditory, visual, or otherwise. The historian reversed and extended the craft's known trajectory to the star called Rose, and so we named them White Rosians. In addition to the occupants, there were only stacks of three types of crates containing the passengers' necessities. One type for water, one for dry grain, and one refrigerated and containing an orange-colored oblong fruit. The star barge's control systems were also enigmatic, but we did not at that time concern ourselves with the specifics of the technology. We welcomed the serene occupants, ushering them out into the light of our sun and aiding them in the unloading of their supply crates. Throughout the process, all communication remained lacking. They were little interested in speech or hand signals, though they did appear to comprehend pointing to an extent. But they clearly enjoyed the sunlight they had so long missed, as shown in their running and leaping in the field, and our children joined them. When the oligarch descended from the Gold River building, he embraced one of the guests on broadcast. Also like the monks of the five wheat corns, the White Rosians were not apparently highly concerned with the intellectual. Indeed, within the very day of the landing, the discussion already began as to whether these beings were intellectual or only emotional. However, we had the evidence of the dropship and its modest sophistication as a guarantor that some degree of intellect had been involved in the arrival. They are beautiful beings, the White Rosians, graceful, shining white in the direct sun, and brightly colored of mane. Again, they resemble us in body plan, even possessing opposable digits and sexual organs not unrecognizable as the heritage of ancient Earth. To make the White Rosians welcome, and to facilitate the search for some method of communication, the All-World Federation implemented the old ritual of taking to house, as when in feudal times villages exchanged marriageable youths to forge alliances or ratify a new pact. The exchange would court a year in the host village as guests, and if the gesture was entirely ceremonial, then depart. However, the romances written of that time would have us believe the ritual often succeeded in the formation of mating couples. I was fascinated by the White Rosians from the moment they first disembarked into sunlight, looking so happy to see a sun again. So I nominated myself as a volunteer to take a White Rosian to house. It begged a level of trust, of course, or of courage, as we knew little of these new neighbors, and even granting them the trust of their best intentions, there was no guarantee they would not become unwitting vectors for a disease that our heel hands were unable to screen. I accepted the risk. My curiosity was great and my heart open, as the scripture says. She arrived with her escort within the week. The mechanisms stood up by the East Earthers for placing the White Rosians with hosts must be lauded for its impromptu efficiency. No measure withheld from the guest, as the scripture also says. The foremost concern had been getting all ten dozen of the guests comfortable. Of course, many went with governors and scientists, but nearly half of the guests were distributed over all world to see everything it has to offer and taste its hospitality. The door stone rolled aside and we welcomed her into our home. In her we saw mingled curiosity and trepidation, but an ultimate serenity that conquered both. For the sake of the taking-to-house ritual, 
Her Easterther escorts played the role of parents in entrusting her safety, honor, and comfort to my parents and to me. Her hair was vibrant pink. Two columns of four nipples each lined her front from the collar to just below the ribcage. What we said to welcome her didn't matter to her, so it doesn't matter to repeat it here. While our words floated around her ears, I found we could communicate, to a degree yet to be determined, at an emotive level with her eyes and expressions of the mouth, due to our mutual ancient earth ancestry. She stood in front of me and I saw her eyes pass over me. I became conscious that I didn't know what to do, what gesture might make her welcome, warm, and what gestures might offend or frighten. So instead of clasping arms, embracing, or kissing, I only, meekly, showed her my palms. Her first meal with her family was evening meal, and my uncles and aunts and grandfather were present for the occasion, all brimming with curiosity. One of our first concerns was how to refer to her, and we settled on the name Rain, which was also the name of our family's friend's new daughter. Rain, forgivably belonging to an alien earth, found little use for her plate or utensils, preferring her agile hands and that graceful opposable thumb that the scientists told us likely evolved for the sake of climbing and of peeling fruit rind in their ancestral forests. There was little indication of whether her manners ashamed her, but we continued to communicate with smiles, and she smiled in return. This was not her first taste of all-world food, for the White Rosians had already been trialed on various foods for several days prior and seemed to take well to it. The scientists of the knowing had provided us with a list of approved foods. Others were discouraged for the risk of an undiscovered reaction. We served bell squash and plums with evening lettuce and king beans, and there was no dish she disdained. Grandpa told her jokes, and Aunt Rush solicited her beauty secrets, both to little purpose save to make her feel engaged in our speaking and as an excuse to smile at her. We set her up with the guest bedroom after dinner, where I led her and showed her to bed. I noticed when I tried to guide her with a hand on her back that she shrunk away, and I felt a little embarrassed that I had made a misstep. When I patted the bed, she jumped onto it and made herself comfortable immediately. A bed speaks for itself, I suppose. The scientists had discerned, in addition to diet, the preferred manner of toileting, which was to use a waste bin of wood chips. The more aromatic, the more preferred. And one of these was provided to us by the escorts from the knowing. We stationed it beside our own toilet. We became increasingly certain this being was more emotional than intellectual. However, it came out on the broadcasts that day that they had found an engraved plaque aboard the star barge, which could not yet be translated. While this and the ship itself spoke of intelligence, if it was the occupant's own intellect, It remained enigmatic and alien to us. In our family, we entertained notions of intelligence alien to our own experience. Perhaps the intelligence operated at the hive level rather than at the individual. Or, perhaps, it was transitory. For example, present in youth but fading with maturity. Or else perhaps they were intelligent at night but a motive only during the day. Not that we observed evidence of such. It was only a notion to be heard and entertained over dinner. There was, of course, the possibility that they had not traveled on their own, but had been sent by others which begged more wondering. 
In the days, we would take Rain out to see the city and its environ. She followed us where we would go, but more loosely than one would expect, and we reasoned that this accorded with her existence as a being without spoken communication. There was no need to hear or be heard to be part of the group. The group could be spread over some distance. We often had to watch behind us to make sure we did not lose her. Many of those we passed greeted her hospitably and asked her intriguing questions she could not answer. Children were particularly taken and wanted her to play with them. She became fond of the grove near our apartment, where the canal runs. Rain leapt around and climbed the trees with considerable grace. She also drank of the canal and delighted in bedding down in the crook of a fallen tree in the sun. It made us smile. We made this a daily trip. I went alone with her after the first, and together we ran the length of the crystal canal from green seed to water dump in the fallen leaves before taking rest in the crook of a tree. Sometimes children would run and leap with her, and she would enjoy the game until they tried to touch her, at which she would start and recoil. Rain would make a sound like pshht at them. I would tell the children that touch and nearness made white rosians uncomfortable. Please be understanding. It is their way. During the Thunder Moon season, I went with Rain into the countryside to see the rock formation called Planeswalker's Piles. The trail wound through red and yellow leaf trees, following the creek until the clearing. Where the stand of trees ended, you could see the rocks, four or five mounds of boulders that had been the heart of a mountain that ancient rains washed away. On the far side of Pile 3, we were traversing a series of boulders low in the pile, which I did not suppose to be dangerous, or I would not have led rain that way. In brief, I did something stupid and found myself down in a crevice with a badly twisted ankle. I looked up at the empty bright blue, which approximated a hexagon breaking the darkness of the orange-hued stones. And rain's face appeared, comprehending my situation with those large black jewel eyes. I returned the gaze apologetically. For a few hours, Rain lay there on the boulder with her face overhanging, while I tested my ankle and crawled around the little pit, deciding the likeliest means of egress. I found there was little I could do with the shapes around me and my ankle as injured as it was, so I sat back down to collect my thoughts. I started as Rain's body landed on the floor beside me. She caught herself on all fours and, crouching like a tree ape, studied me. I smiled weakly and called her a moron. It was the only time I ever insulted her, even in teasing. Then she who feared the touch of another being came beside me and sat, and she pressed her muzzle into my shoulder. Slowly I put my arm around her and I laughed. After some time, she fell asleep. She woke in the middle of the night. I woke many times. Tomorrow would be another day for calling out for a passerby. But what if there were none on a workday? Or what if it stormed in the night? Rain circled the cavern floor and mewed for a while before lying back down. Dawn came without a storm, and the sun took hours to banish the cold and shadow of the cavern as noon approached. Rain became anxious and grappled the stones for an exit. As a natural climber, she found a route to the rim, and I did my best to push her over from below. And then she vanished for several hours. In the suspense of not knowing whether I was abandoned or alone now, I was a little indignant, which was silly, 
It was good that she was free. Perhaps she would find edible leaves or grasses and at least abolish her hunger. There was no reason for both of us to suffer while I waited. But in the mid-afternoon, rain reappeared suddenly, landing on the rock beside me again. She had brought a share of paste lettuce and wilderweed back, to my delight. We shared this modest dinner, and in the evening she slept with her head on my chest. Just after dark, the light came. The cavern lit up like a lightning strike that didn't end, and I shielded my eyes looking up to see the single eye gazing from a yellow shell. The historian had constructed our circumstance. I would learn that my parents, whom I failed to tell our destination, had contacted the authority, and they had consulted the historian, which reconstructed our situation from observation of the particles of our home environment under its algorithm and observed us in the hologram that is in all particular interaction, and subsequently dispatched a responder terminal to our location. I hugged Rain, whose confusion and alarm had squelched her joy, and who squirmed against me. I laughed heartily. After our rescue, Rain slept beside me every night. Her distaste for contact had changed, for me anyway, and now we were inseparable much of the time, and I loved her more dearly as well, because I welled up with gratitude when I looked at her now, remembering, it's silly, the meal of weeds she had brought me when I was in trouble and how she remained with me, even casting herself into the hole for me. Maybe she was not an intellectual being, making the dropship more of a mystery. But she was certainly an emotive being, and she proved herself my friend. In those days, the historian accomplished the first reliable reconstruction of the White Rosian's homeworld. They did not broadcast it. Rumors leaked through the cities first, and when they finally released the simulation on the communal knowledge interface, the demand of our collective curiosity strained the knowledge interface servers to breaking. I avoided it for days, having heard the rumors and felt nothing but disgust. But I knew I had to know. I covered my eyes in the headset and flew through interstellar space. A notation indicated the small rose system, and then as I neared, the second planet of the system, second rose. The planet bloomed from a speck of mottled light into a continent-strewn surface consuming the totality of my vision, and littered with wandering gauze-like clouds. As the historian brought me toward rain's past, I descended through the clouds toward a dust-colored plain, where the horizon glummed deep blue. The featureless plain was broken into great speckled rectangles seen from above, reminding me of the farms on Allworld. The speckles in the plots became an entire populace of white bodies soiled with prairie dust as I came to hover in the air a few dozen meters above them. The air stank of feces and bodies and rancid food. The horizons vanished in the haze of dust, and as far as I could see there were white rosians, aimless and unsheltered. Are they refugees, I wondered, displaced by some disaster? In the midst of the vast enclosures, there was a single low-laying building with a ramp leading up to it. A line of white rosians proceeded into the building on this ramp. I prayed that this was some refugee processing effort, a process that, though clearly flawed, might bring better circumstances in the end to these uncountable homeless beings. 
I was directed toward the building and overflew the ramp. It was there that I saw the first other native of Second Rose, whose occupation was directing the listless White Roseans into the structure. I wasn't permitted to tarry, and I only got a glance at a creature whose body plan differed considerably from the familiar White Roseans. The indoors was musky and half-lit in yellow-tinged artificial light. On the other side of the entrance, a great machine received the White Roseans, operated by another of the second form of native. Here I got a better look at what resembled a mushroom or a cephalopod, possessing a purple skin flooded with iron-rich blood. It wore some sort of heavy bib over a multi-armed article of clothing. One of the white Rosians from the ramp was received into the machine. Her neck was clamped into something like a vice, and the attendant plunged a knife into the artery of the neck. He let the blood flow onto the floor as the machine turned her over and dumped her onto a conveyor system. The historian took me to rain. I was shaking. In another room, white Rosians stood in pens like shower stalls, only big enough to stand or maybe to curl up in the bottom. That bright hair waved from dozens of heads with black tear trails running from the eyes down to the chins. Near the end of the first row, I found Rain, and I tried in vain to take her hands as she rested them on the bar of the pen and stared through me. I began blurting out promises she could not hear, but fell silent as the purple Rosian came in the room pushing a tray of tools and came to her. I could only watch and struggle in vain against the solidity of a past already accomplished. As the being sorted his tools, he called out and another came to assist him. The second worker forced Rain to turn with his hands and pinned her neck against the bar. His other hands restrained her waist. What are you doing to her? I wondered, trembling and weeping. The first purple Rosian had gloved his primary hand from a plunger-driven dispenser tube. He squirted his palm full of a gelatinous substance. What are you doing? I tried to grab him, but when I failed, I turned to the wall and almost refused to watch anymore. But I forced myself to hold my running eyes on what was happening. The worker put one hand on her tailbone as she squirmed against the other's restraint. He began to work his hand into her genitals as she fought harder. The other struck her on the forehead with a cudgel to stun her. The first coerced his whole hand into her to deposit the load of semen in his palm. She bellowed. I was taken to a time months later, when she loitered in the same small pen with a full abdomen resting on the bars. Mechanical tubes clung by cups to the two rows of nipples that lined her front like buttons and pulled milk from her now full teats. Somewhere in the room, a white rosy and bellowed repeatedly, sounding ill. When it came time for the birth, they goaded her into another place with cudgels and electric rods. She was sick now, and when she fell in the walled chute, they struck her even harder to try to get her up. Blood trailed from her vagina 
as they proceeded to drag her to the room where she completed the birth. For two weeks, Rain nursed her child outdoors in the relative improvement of those endless fields, eating whole grass and fruit pulp from long troughs with countless others. They sawed off the youth's horns, even without anesthetic, giving him the familiar nubs of the adults. At the end of two weeks, they came and took her offspring while she cried for it. Then they brought her back inside to take the rest of her milk. They took her back to the first room, to the standing pen, and when weeks passed and the milk went dry, the ritual of the insemination was reenacted. The historian brought me out of that room and into another. I proceeded in a daze, seeing but not seeing, dragged by the algorithm, resigned to receive every evil passively. I snapped to as a head slid across the floor in a pool of blood and stopped near my feet, staring beyond my head toward the ceiling, with black glass eyes and a slack jaw showing the tongue. The headless body hung upside down from a hook to let the blood drain freely from the corpse onto the steel floor as it was conveyed out of the room down the hall. Another entered on a hook, and the purple rosian in a red-splattered white garment began to saw its head off. It had apparently been stunned and did not struggle until the blade was far into the soft tissue of the neck. She cried and thrashed as foaming blood bubbled from the cut and from her mouth and nose. I curled into a ball and cried. I had no control left over myself. When I began to come to, I was still in the simulation, but the historian was proceeding back farther into time. I was in a greener place and rainy. It drizzled lightly as blue clouds floated along the crags of the coast. In a field lined with hedgestones, a worker of the purple race led a white rosian by the collar. Her young followed at her ankles. They passed a hedgerow into another field, where about a dozen of her kind waited. Then waves of time washed over me again. In a stucco hovel, a purple rosian showed glyphs on the wall to his offspring. Portrayals of purple rosians pursuing the whites with crude killing tools. And above them there hung a full-horned white rosian skull, bleached white. The skull was large for a white rosian, and possessed a slight crest on its crown. Again, time flew in reverse, in a semi-tropical forest possessing a canopy through which one could not see the sky. Purple rosians rested around a fire pit. On wooden rods hung clumps of flesh which they burned over a fire and ate. Two of them wore the skins of other creatures' cloaks, creatures who possessed long muzzles with fangs as long as a finger. Suddenly, in the same forest but earlier, I saw a purple rosian more robust than any I'd seen before, and I noted there were others at a distance, foraging. The foragers were digging in the ground for tubers, but this individual was sorting through stones at a creekside. He stopped when he found one with a sharp edge and kept it in his hand. He chirped at his relatives and tried to show the sharp stone, even cutting himself lightly across the palm to demonstrate his idea, but they barked at him in return. They fell silent and gazed into the trees. They had heard something. 
After a moment they fled, but the historian chose not to follow them. The fanged creature, who in a later generation would become their cloaks, skulked patiently after them, now apparently the source of terror. Finally, in a remote epoch, I was shown the ancestors of the Purple Rosians, small and tree-dwelling, not intelligent enough yet to master fire to cook tubers or sanitize flesh, let alone for creating killing implements from stone, eating instead now leaves and fruit for which their climbing limbs served to great advantage. The historian conducted me to another part of the forest. There I saw the progenitor of the White Rosians. She was a noble being, possessing a mane of drab hair rather than the bright blue or pink, whose horns alone stretched wider than I am tall, to whom I might have stood as tall as the bottom of her sternum. While the White Rosians I knew were lanky, this one was muscular. That ridge on her crown served to anchor the great muscles of a strong jaw. Another lumbered into view through the trees, and another, as the tribe moved through the jungle. A purple Rosian stumbled upon them, in the clearing, and froze. The white Rosian's black eyes fastened on her. A single snort sent the purple one scrambling up a tree into the canopy. As if waking from a dream, I found myself returned to the killing place, as another head slid in a pool of blood at my feet. Looking down the hall, I saw the conveyor and innumerable white Rosians, headless, hanging upside down from hooks, being drained of blood as they were pulled around the corner. The historian finished translating the plaque that had come on the dropship, and the translation was released in the following days. It read, in the ancient tradition, the kingdom of untranslatable, second planet of untranslatable, gives the gift of cattle to the neighbor kingdom of untranslatable, as a pledge of goodwill and peace, that our worlds might come into communication as allies. May your fields be fruitful and your herds many-headed, our envoy to follow in peace. Violator of Vanaheim! I'm declining quickly. I went from coughing to coughing and hacking in under an hour. I'm certainly going to die. <coughs> I think I'll go outside for some air. You know, maybe ride a crowded train or take an impulse flight to the nearest densely populated major city. Just get my lungs out and about for a while. <clears throat> Why do I feel like tiger knuckle tea would make my throat feel better? That's weird.
Anyway, Monsterbaiters, be sure to subscribe, rate, <coughs> and review if you enjoyed this episode of <coughs> Monster. <coughs> Fuck. <clears throat> huh. There sure are a lot of corpses on the street today. Way more than usual. <coughs> hey, that guy just coughed up a lung. Wuhan flu ain't nothing to fuck with. Wuhan flu ain't nothing to fuck with. Wuhan flu ain't nothing to fuck with. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warpbox Media. Today's story was The Cow in Reverse by me, Brett Norwood. Music by... <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Hey, Monster Baiters, Brett here. If you love this epidemic, uh, episode rather, of Monster Porn, be sure you're subscribed and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps this show catch on. We are contagion. Check out the Monster Porn store at monsterpornpodcast.com store, where we offer t-shirts, phone cases, stickers, the Moms Love Monster Porn mug, vaccines, a hard top for your Tacoma, and no thong, the sword of the Volsungs. Follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Until the shark angels come, stay weird, and Godspeed, strange cowboy. I so apologize to Wu-Tang Clan. I so fucked with them. There was one thing they told me not to fuck with, and that was them. And I still fucked with them. To make the White Rosians welcome and to facilitate, facilitate, brah! <laughs> I can't. I <laughs> To make the White Rosians welcome and to facilitate. Oh my god, I did it the fuck again. Uh, facilitate. To facilitate. Welcome and to facilitate. Facilitate. Which I did not suppose to be dangerous, or I would not have led rain that whale. That whale? Making the drop shit. Drop shit? More of a mystery. Oh, fuck.